All right, we are officially recording, so quit talking about all that stuff you've been talking about. All right, uh, let's go where are we at. We've been in Genesis chapter 6, and we were getting toward the end. Uh, this is when uh, basically God was letting uh, Noah know that, hey, I'm going to destroy everything, but I'm going to save you, and hey, I want you to build an ark. Gave him a little information about how he was to do it. We talked about all those different things. We're picking up now at verse 19. And I wanted to highlight just one little thing. If you were to look at the the layout of chapter 6 toward the end in general, what you would find is kind of interesting. Verses 14 through 16 are instructions. And then they move on to verses 17 and 18, which is more of an announcement of sorts, proclamation, announcement, whatever. And then when we get back to verses 19 to 21, we go back to instructions. Maybe you care or don't care about that. But again, it's just all of these little nitpicky things, what's going on in my text, they can be interesting. They can be important at times, other times, not so much, whatever. So I'm just kind of pointing them out. So we're about to head into another small section of instruction, okay? So Kim, do you want to read verse 19 for us? And of every living thing of all flesh, to every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Okay. So, uh, I, we've already talked about this, so let me just use this as a question. When he says, every living thing of all flesh, what's he talking about? Is it really all, all flesh? I would think so. Yeah. Yes, except for fish, sea creatures. Yeah. Do they count as flesh, right? I, kind of seems like they would, right? Um, so uh, before we had all flesh and, and it was kind of interesting because, well, wait, are you saying that all flesh sinned? All flesh corrupted the earth? Or was it man, that specific species of flesh that did that and it corrupted all flesh with it or, right? We never really could answer that question. We don't know what's going on. But here, every living thing of all flesh, okay, technically that's not true because of sea creatures. And it's just another example. When you're reading your Bible and you try to take something and hyper-literal interpretation, it says all flesh. He didn't take fish on the ark, right? So you've got to learn to read that sometimes it's just speaking generally the way that we would talk with one another and we would understand each other. And technically, we might not be 100% accurate, but we all know what we mean. Sometimes it's hyperbole. We're exaggerating things. Sometimes it's poetry and it, it, it isn't meaning at all what it says, right? So again, it's learning to read the text for what it is, what's it saying as opposed to the hyper-literal, what does it say, right? So there's that. Um, now, this is also interesting. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark. And we know, because we've read the story and whatever, it's pairs, okay, couples, if you want to say it that way. Have you ever noticed that that's not actually what happens? Shaking your head, yes? You got... Well, I've been confused on that matter because later he talks about seven. Yeah, yeah. And so here it is. That's exactly right. Right here, it's... in fish don't need a boat. Right. <laughs> That's right. Fish don't need a boat. Here, he's, he's saying something very specific. Two of every sort into the ark. Later, in Genesis 7-2, he's going to tell him, you need to take seven pairs of clean, one pair of unclean which is going to raise all sorts of questions. We'll probably get to today. So what we need to notice when he's saying two of every sort, 
in these particular instructions, God isn't focusing so much on the actual count of every kind of animal. What he's focusing on is, I need them to be pairs. I need them to be couples. I need them for why? Why would they have to be couples? So they could propagate the species, right? So here, you look at a number, oh, it says two, and we immediately jump to God's given him the count, the official count. No, he's telling him how this is going to work. So his emphasis is different, right? He says to take them into the ark. Why? To keep them alive. Okay, well, that's important. You can't propagate if you're not already alive. And then, of course, uh, propagating is that. But uh, do you remember why we talked about why does God... Well, there's two, two sides of this. Why is God saying that all animals, insects, everything to do with the land, why does it all have to die? Because man screwed it up. And then also, why do all of the animals have to be saved along with Noah? Right? Do you remember why we talked about that? Because this is, in Genesis 1, this is man's domain. This is his rule, right? They get sucked in to everything that man does right or wrong because they are the thing that God has given them to rule over, right? The earth as well, but I'm just saying they get sucked into it that way. So we got that. And then uh, they shall be male and female is like, dude, you, you can't just grab two, not just any two. You got to get one male and one female, right? And again, it's that emphasis. We're trying to save and propagate, okay? Verse 20, Mike. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. Yeah, okay. Now, everybody's translation is a little bit different, but... If you're used to your translation, you should notice something about verse 20. The language that's being used, and I'm going to read mine because it's maybe a little more uh, classical. People will remember these words a little more. Of the birds, according to their kinds. (coughs) And of the animals, according to their kinds. Creeping thing, according to its kind. What is that language reminding you of? All right, you've got five previous chapters as your choice. Which chapter do you think it was? Chapter one. Yeah, the first creation story. Remember, chapter two is like a, like a second kind of creation story, different focus, whatever. The first creation story, he was creating all of the plants, and they were reproducing after their kind, according to their kind. And he created all the animals, and they were supposed to reproduce according to their kind. So when the writer in chapter 6 uses this language here, when he's talking about, hey, I need you to bring these into the ark to keep them alive, to propagate the species, and he uses that language, what is he trying to get you to think of? Genesis chapter 1. He wants you to go back to the first creation story. He wants you already to see that when he's going to completely flood the earth, we're taking it back to exactly the way it looked in Genesis chapter 1, right at the top. When they got there, it was just covered with water. There was no land. God had to separate the land from the water. You remember that? Right? So he's, they're, they're giving you the hints, hey, this is what we're doing here, fellas. Keep an eye on this because we're redoing creation. Right? It's kind of a neat thing. Um, two of every sort, you see it again, the pairs. Uh, and this just highlights again what's another one of the things that we said we learned back in Genesis 1. God was separating light from dark, day from night. God was separating land from sea. God was separating, you know, sky and all of that. Everything got separated. And then when he created things, they were all according to their kind, right? A place for everything and everything in its place. God likes distinction. Distinction plays a very important role 
in the idea of order. God likes order. Now, he does want us to be one united body. He wants us to be in unity with him. So he also likes unity, but unity doesn't mean uniformity. Do you see the difference? To be in unity with one another doesn't mean that we all have to be exactly the same. We might be very, very different, but we can be in unity. And that's what God wants in his creation. He wants unity among distinction, right? So we're seeing that again here. Uh, How about Philip? Can you read verse 21? As for you, take for yourself every kind of edible food and gather it to yourself. It will be food for you and for them. Okay. Every sort of food. We know where we are in the story. What kind of things are we talking about? Grasses, yeah. 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 All kind, and I mean, of course, there are some divisions, but generally speaking, it's all the same food for everyone on the ark. Human, animal, doesn't matter. They're all eating the same kind of thing. No one is eating meat. Nothing on the ark is going to get eaten. No living thing on the ark is going to get eaten, right? And, and that sometimes, you know, it's important just to say that out loud. Imagine it out loud. Know what we're talking about. Hey, this, is, this matters, right? So every sort of food, it was all the same for everybody. Uh, they were supposed to store, at, store that. And we, remember we talked about the levels on the ark? We said there could be three, could be four. We don't know. Uh, A lot of times you'll see when artists do a drawing, they try to figure out what was going on. They'll have like an entire level that's just food. Maybe that was so, because it had to go a long time. We haven't read it yet. Does anybody have any idea how long they were in the ark and had food and all that? It rained for 40 days, yeah. How long were they there? Yeah. There was uh, the, the different time frames are talked about. One of them is five months, uh, but the total time they spend is pushing toward a year. It's a long time. That's a lot of food. And all you got to do is think about the, what do they call them, preppers? <laughs> Try, trying to, hey, you know, they got a room in their basement where they got tanks of water and, you know, all this stuff. Man, this, this isn't just for their little family. This is like all of the animals of the earth, right? So... It's a lot of food, a lot of food. They store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. So, uh, oh, well, yeah, I actually wrote down this question. Look, all of those animals, all of that food has to last, you know, in the neighborhood of a year. You could think, man, Noah had to be really smart or God had to give him some, some really amazing instructions for how to make that work. Or... You could think, I don't know. I think maybe God did a little something supernatural to help them. Because could they really fit all that food on and all that? I don't know. Text doesn't say. Nothing in the text says that God did anything supernatural. But would it be crazy to believe that he did? I mean, he could. Fishes and loaves. That's right. He's done it. So many different ways. And I, just think of the manna story. My goodness, he fed them for 40 years. Away. It's just, it's amazing. So, yeah, you, you just, we don't know. And we don't have to, we don't have to answer questions like that. Sometimes it's fun just to ask them. I wonder if God did something supernatural. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. All right. Final little bit. This is the end of chapter six. Rick? And Noah did this. Okay, now, now we're getting to my favorite part of the story. I mean, all the other stuff is very interesting, the details, all the things that are going on. But this brings us back to the real heart of the story. 
Noah did this. Okay, remember we had some instructions, some proclamations, some instructions. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What is the thing? Remember when we were doing the genealogy, Noah's genealogy, and we said there was something weird about it because it said, these are the generations of Noah. And then it was like somehow we got off track, started talking about Noah was righteous. And then we came back and it's like, oh, now we're doing the generations, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? But what did we say about that? Yeah, it's as if the writer purposely stuck it in there to say, hey, the number one son, the most important part of his prodigy, his legacy, was his righteousness. It even superseded his own children, right? And that, that's an interesting perspective. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Why did God consider Noah righteous? Very simple answer. What did Noah do? Yeah, he did all that God commanded him, right? And so many people, they're going to hear that and they do one of two things. Very quickly, they make that adjustment in their mind. Oh, but that was Old Testament. Or they'll say, Oh, but that isn't required anymore because Jesus, right? These things, they're, I mean, they're connected, but they're not, they're not the same, right? When we see that Noah did all that God commanded and that God liked that, God said Noah is righteous. Noah had favor and merit with God. That hasn't changed. We all can pursue that same thing. And I'm going to say it because I say it every single time. Does your obedience save you? Is that the thing that takes you into heaven? No. Jesus accomplished all of that work. That's not what we're talking about. This is, okay, but somewhere, let me ask you this. Jesus did the work, all right? So are you all universalists? Jesus did the work. Does that mean that doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, everybody's going to heaven? Anybody here a universalist? No. So you all think that some people go to heaven and some people don't. True? Y'all there? Okay. So there's got to be something that separates the sheep from the goats, right? There's got to be something do you think it's believing in Jesus the same way that kids believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny? Do you think it's just something that happens in your head and boom, I'm in? Right? Now, you're kind of giggling. It sounds a little silly when I say it that way, right? Because how many people, how, do you know people who would swear up and down, well, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and yet, you look at their life and you're thinking, oh my gosh, you live like an enemy of God. What, what are you even talking about, right? Now, are we the final judge? We don't know people. We don't know their lives. Okay, I get all that. But there must be something that distinguishes you as someone who goes to heaven is it like is able to leverage what Jesus has done versus those who do not. And it can't be something as simple as mental assent. Because then you go, Hitler believed. Well, what do you do with that? Do you really think he's going to heaven forever? <laughs> it's just weird, right? Noah was righteous. Noah had favor because he did all that God commanded him. We must pursue the same thing. And it's not, you shouldn't look at it like, oh, I'm not good enough. No, that's not the thing. It's, is your life aimed at loyalty, faithfulness, etc.? Is it, and in a general sense, is it God first above all else? Are you perfect like Jesus? No. 
Let's just talk about David. A murderous adulterer. And yet, a man after God's own heart. That just sounds impossible. But it's real. That's the way God is able to see humans, right? He looks at you, Kim, and he, he does see everything that you think and say and do. He sees that. And I'm guessing, if you're anything like me, there are times when there are things that you think or say or do that are disappointing to him, unacceptable to him. That, that could happen, right? But he also sees you, what's inside of you, everything that you've been through, what you're dealing with, how you view the world, all of those things. And he can see past just the simple acts, right? But here's the thing. If you truly believe, so remember, we, I, I was using the silly example of believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, okay? But when you, when any of us truly believes something, we act based on that belief. And so that's the difference. When, you, when you're believing, and it's not like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, well, I guess if you're a small enough kid, you... <laughs> You, you really believe because you act like you do, right? But if you really believe, it's not just something that you say. It's not just something where you go, well, if the choices are there is a God or there isn't, I'm going with there is. That's not enough. But when you really believe it, your life changes to match what you believe, right? It's not a contest. It's not I'm more righteous than you or whatever. All you care about is, are you truly team God or not, right? And that's who Noah was. That's who Noah was. We're going to see it with Moses. We're going to see it with Abraham. Well, Abraham first. We'll see it, many characters, David, uh, well, Jesus, obviously, right? And he did it perfectly, right? Perfectly, right? It's a big difference. But I'm just saying, this Noah story, one of the things that we need to take away is that his righteousness mattered. It, it didn't save him. God saved him. But God selected him to take part in it, right? Because of it, right? You see the difference? Your righteousness is never going to save you, but it may be the thing that allows you to take part in what God has already done, right? Again, he sees the heart. You got the guy on the cross at the end. I mean, he was converted right there hanging on a cross. He didn't have any opportunity to do anything, right? And yet, God recognized whatever it was that happened inside him at that moment, that was real, right? And so, you can't be gauging it on the work that you do or whatever, but it's an important part of who we are. Your life is over. You, like baptism, you've died in the water and you've been raised to new life. You're a new creature, and so now you do new things. What kind of things? God thinks. Whatever you can figure out and understand about God's character and will, you want to do that. I want to be a part of that. And that's what drives you. You know, that's who we all need to be. And that's where discipleship begins to play such an important role because as you mature in your understanding of who God is, what he wants from you, and you, you live that way, you can bring the younger alongside and actually instruct and train them in what they're to do. You can help in their walk, right? So anyway... It's a little soapbox for me, but it's important stuff. So let's see. I got something else written here. We'll go over before we do a end of chapter six thing. God could have wiped it all out and started over. I mean, he, he, he kind of does. But what I'm saying is he could have wiped it all out and then said, yeah, I'm not going to tell anybody about the first try. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not saving anybody. I'm just going to go create some new men, right? He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he wipes it out so that he can fix it. And God's been fixing the world all along. I mean, that, the, the story of the Bible is God fixing the thing that has been broken. Now, ultimately, once he 
demonstrates his victory over that, the kingdom here on this earth in this age, well, then that will all go away and there'll be a new earth, new heaven, a new earth, all new creation. And it's going to be different without any mistakes in it, right? It's going to be awesome. But he's going to have victory over this one as well. Our jobs to join him in this fixing of the world, right? That's a thing. In, in uh, Judaism, the phrase is tikkun olam, repairing the world, repairing this age, right? It's kind of a neat, neat concept. We do that by obedience to his instructions. It's righteousness. It's the very thing that we see in Noah. And again, Noah's righteousness saved himself and how many others? Seven others, his wife and his three children with wives. Yeah, eight total, right? And that is a pattern. One person's righteousness can actually save more than just himself. We're going to see it with Moses, saves the entire nation, right? We're going to, I mean, Jesus is the ultimate example. His righteousness actually saves all of mankind for all time, all that choose, right? So it's a pattern and it's, it's a weird pattern to us. We don't like to think of it that way, but that's what's in your scripture. So, all right, here ends chapter six. What do you think about that? Comments or questions? Is this the Noah that you had growing up? A little bit different, huh? Yeah? A little more detail? Y'all ready to flood the earth with me? <laughs> Let's get on with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. By the way, I've changed my... So for the first six, six chapters, you'll see that my notes look something like this. The printed text, and then I just write things. I've matured onto... Now I just go ahead and type it all in there because it's easier to read. So uh, we'll do that. Um, where are we at? Rick, you read last? I did. Yeah. Terry, read chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Okay. All right. Lord said to Noah, You ever wonder, how did he do that? in a dream? Was he just standing around and it's like, oh, God, I didn't see you. <laughs> you know, I mean, you ever, it's just, it's weird. And we know, like in the garden, there was a separation. God, there was something was veiled. And yet, we have seen God speak with people all along. It's very interesting just to, to kind of imagine. But he tells him, go into the ark, you and all your household, that, that word for household is family, right? But no, no surprise there. It's the same thing we think of it. Um, but again, <laughs> I know I was harping on it a lot, but look at what he says next. For I have seen that you are righteous before me. Remember back in Genesis 1, what did God keep doing? God saw, and what did he see? That things were good. Then all of a sudden, Eve saw that something was good, and that was inappropriate. She was deciding good and evil for herself instead of letting God do it. And then remember at the beginning of the Noah story, God saw that the whole earth was filled with corruption. So God saw something bad for the first time in the text, right? But here, I have seen that you are righteous. God sees something good, right? And then, interesting little phrase. Uh, well, l l I'm sorry, let me make one more point. So, if Noah is righteous, Noah is righteous in whose eyes, if we can say it that way? Who? God's eyes. Yeah. Who is the measuring stick of Noah's righteousness. God. Yeah, it's not Noah. It's not anybody else that could have been around at the time. 
God himself. But he changed his stick. What do you mean? In this generation. Oh, I, yeah, in this generation. So we're going to get there. We're going to get there because that's a great question. He's got a shorter stick now, in my opinion. Okay, yeah, and that's a, that is a good question. Um, but, but God, he himself is calling Noah righteous. And I'm just emphasizing, when we think of righteousness, we usually think Jesus. And then outside of Jesus, we go, oh, all of our righteousness is just filthy rags, right? That's what we do. I'm suggesting that's an incorrect picture. I mean, compared to God, our righteousness is filthy rags. But God put a measuring stick up to Noah and said, dude, you're in. I like it. You can ride the ride, <laughs> right? You're tall enough, whatever you want to call it. It was good. God can put a measuring stick up to you in your life and say, I see that this is good. You are righteous. It's okay. You're not Jesus. None of us are. We all get that. But it's okay to pursue that. Because why? Why would we pursue anything like that? Because we're team God. Because we're team God. Yeah. Are we doing it? Uh, do you do it so that well, I, I want God to like me. I want God to favor me. I, do you do it for that reason? You might, but that's, that's not really where the money is. The, the, you do it because of who he is. You do it because of what he's already done. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. So if somebody ever says to you, oh man, I don't know why you focus on trying to do this or this or this or this. God took care of all that. We're, we're no longer under law. We're under grace, right? You start hearing people talk that way. All you got to do is think to yourself, but he's God. I mean, if anybody was worthy of my time, attention, effort, energy, whatever you want to call it, if anyone is worthy it's him. I'm not doing it because somehow it's effectively buying my resurrection or something. I'm doing it because he is awesome. This is what he wants for mankind. And he isn't doing it because me being good somehow makes something good for him. He wants it for me. <laughs> right? Remember, uh, Pastor Nick was talking about it's like a coach. A coach make you do all sorts of things. Is he doing that because it somehow benefits the coach? No. He's making you run laps and hit the dummies and do all... He's, he's making you do all that because it's good for you. That's, that's a great image of what God is doing. He's given us these instructions so that we can experience the best humanity that we can experience, right? It's a great picture. Great, great picture. Now, back to Rick's question. He says, I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So the question is, is it like, well, if we remember, God is about to destroy all men, all the earth with it. I mean, he's destroying everything. And he found one guy <laughs> who was above all the rest. So is it like, all right, here's no righteousness. And then just slightly above that is Noah. Because he's just righteous in that generation. Or could it mean something else where Noah's righteousness is actually pretty impressive, right? Now, a little bit of a hint. We already have this. Noah did all that God commanded him. Go ahead. In part sense, well, at least I think that's where you're headed with this generation. It was so bad to uh, to be righteous in that type of environment. I wouldn't say it's just a little above, but Noah was way above. It's yeah. I would interpret that. 
what would it do? There's the, the, another view of it. Okay, if everybody else was so bad and Noah was good, what did it take for him to stand out in a crowd like that, not be drawn in to be just like everyone else, right? That's, that's another one. Um, in this generation, just so you know, in the Hebrew underneath, our English translations are very, very uh, heavy in leaning toward in this generation. It could, if you were just translating from the Hebrew yourself, you might very reasonably read this as simply saying, He is righteous before me among all of mankind. And when you do that, you could very easily say, well, yeah, that's just everybody who's alive, his generation. Or you could say all of mankind, like up to this point. It's, it's very broad. You don't really know what it means. And so we're not sure. We can't be certain if Noah is righteous only in relation to his peers or if it's in relation to all of mankind across all time. And we don't know if he's righteous as in, well, he only has to beat every other loser that's alive, and so it was no big deal. Or it's like, no. I mean, he was fighting against the worst odds ever, and he still was able to not be taken in and actually walk in some level of righteousness. It really is quite impressive. So... All right, Rick has already voted. Rick thinks that he was, eh, it wasn't all that great because he was among his generation, right? What do you guys think? When he says that uh, you've, I see that you are righteous before me in this generation, do you think that's super impressive or just mildly interesting? Where would you put it? All right, vote for mildly interesting. All right, vote for super impressive. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, one thing to me is that Noah established a track record, you know, just by being obedient to, to build the ark, right? Uh, and which was substantially a number of years before they entered the ark, right? You know, where we just read the last verse of chapter six, yeah, Noah had a track so, record, uh, you know, to me, uh, God. Put him through a test also. Oh. And he came through that test. Oh. Uh, you know, because there was mocking. Yeah. You know, there was belittling. There yeah. was all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. So uh, part of his obedience was trial test. Nobody had ever built a boat. Right. <laughs> far as we know, right? Well, yeah. ever had rained. And I would agree with you, and we're about ready to get uh, it looks like God's telling. Noah and his family to go in seven days before it rains. I mean, they had to be marked like, okay, you spent all this time building and nothing's happened. You know, seven <laughs> days. And what that reminds me of, maybe there's no parallels, like the armies walking around the walls of Jericho for seven days. Right. Uh, the people had to think that that was crazy. So I'm guessing, uh, well, it looks like Noah's going to continue this track record. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, the way you said it is very interesting because uh, we know that he spent uh, 50 to 75 years building this ark. And, uh, you know, that, come on, that is a long time. Even when you live to be eight or 900 years old, that is a long time. And if we read First Peter, he tells us, I think it's First Peter, Peter, anyway, he says that Noah preached during that time. Zero converts, apparently, right? But he preached all that time. You know, so it could be discouraging. It could, could be discouraging, yeah. But think about it. He's not only faithful to continue building, he's faithful to keep trying. Come on, guys. You need this. This is important. God's going to destroy it all. And it, it's kind of an amazing picture. But yeah, these are all good points. You guys are getting on board. No pun intended. Right? This is good. This is good. Uh, verse 2, where are we at? Do you want to read? Okay, great. Go ahead, Mark. It's kind of odd I got this verse, though. Take with you seven pairs of every <laughs> kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, 
a male and its mate. You know what? Go ahead and read verse 3 also, just to finish the sentence on this one. And also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Yeah. On the righteousness thing, I was thinking, you know, Go ahead. more than a head belief, we believe like we do because of Christ. Yeah. Now, I don't know about Noah, uh-huh. whether he got authority of 60 or Todd, the teacher, maybe God had to grave it on curves. Because, <laughs> you know, right, right. I think his actions showed his belief. Yes. So I think that was his righteousness, was his belief. Yes. Yes, and in the end, and we know this, right? This this is the whole big story of the New Testament. You're not true Israel by blood. You're true Israel by faith. You're not connecting back to Sinai. You're connecting back to Abraham, right? That's the important part. So belief is the thing. The important thing about belief is that it can't just be here. If it's only here, there's no evidence that it's real, not for you or anyone else. I think it's his belief that made him righteous, not whether he was up here or down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that same belief that makes him righteous... Caused him to behave the way he did. Exactly, yeah. It, it manifests in action. and. The only reason I'm emphasizing it, Mark, is because so much of the church is like, oh, oh, don't bother with that stuff. Now you're being, it's like you're you're not believing. If you somehow act faithfully, try to be obedient to something, people twist that around as if, oh, well, you're, you're not believing. You need to just believe, brother. You're trying to do all these works. That's not what anybody's talking about. So, but yeah, you're exactly right on. Exactly right on. So good. So good. So he's taken with him. Now, here it is. This is, you know, a little bit of confusion. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. So before we had to stop and say, oh, I get it. He's he's emphasizing that they need to be in pairs. He's emphasizing that we need to propagate the species, right? Now, now he's getting down to nitty gritty details. Here's exactly how I want you to do it. But notice what he says. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. Just curious, how did Noah know what was clean and what was unclean? Nobody knows, right? When did clean and unclean get defined explicitly the way that we know about it? That's way down the line after they're redeemed from Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai. That's when all that comes. So how does Noah know here and now? Now, There's a couple thoughts. Number one, uh, we don't know a lot about the culture pre-flood because obviously it all got wiped away, whatever. But we do know about all of the ancient cultures that existed after the flood. Well, not all about them. We know a lot. And they also had ideas of certain animals that were, let's just say, fit for sacrifice and certain animals that were not fit for sacrifice. So that was their version of clean and unclean, right? So one thought is that, well, whatever the culture was at the time, there already was some idea of animals that were good for sacrificing and animals that weren't. And so Noah grabbed those, the good ones. Those were the clean ones, right? Another thought is, well, God just told him. It it didn't show up in our text. Too bad for us, but, you know, God just told him. Is there any reason that that couldn't be true? Of course it could. Maybe that's what happened. We We don't really, really know. Um... But what's important in this, a lot of times there's confusion over this idea of clean and unclean uh, and what we might think of as sin and and, and righteousness or something like that. I'm going to use Jesus as an example because I think this paints the boldest clearest picture. Jesus became unclean 
all the time. Jesus was not exempt from becoming unclean. Remember, he uh, raised people from the dead, touching dead bodies. Uh, he healed uh, people with leprosy, they called it, right? Uh, and by touching them, right? He did all kinds of things that made him unclean. That has nothing to do with righteousness, sin or not sin. It's, we're only talking about the words that we might use are ceremonially clean or ritually clean or uh, fit for uh, the temple. Maybe we would say it that way, something like that. And that's only because God made all these rules. This is how you will enter my space. When you want to draw near to me, here's how you'll do it. Was there anything magical in his direction and instruction? No, but those were the rules. And God, he loves obedience, right? So now I'm going to set it out. You be obedient to this. You can draw near to me, right? So in this case, these animals it's not like there's something wrong with unclean animals, right? If Gentiles eat pork, does that mean that they're somehow uh, uh, unacceptable to God? Like, oh, you can't eat that. That's horrible. We're going to find out that God said, hey, all of the animals, you can eat them, right? It doesn't make them somehow inherently bad. It's merely the difference between are they fit for sacrifice before God, or are they not? Right? That's all it is. Okay? So, and what you'll find out, the, the, the separation, it does seem to be that the unclean animals do seem to be more like uh, what you would think of as buzzards and vultures and, you know, things that somehow are involved in uh, uh, the corruption and death, like that that's how they eat or whatever. And a lot of the clean animals, they seem to be more of the just naturally, well, we eat, you know, grasses or plants or this or that or whatever. None of the definitions are super, super clear or distinct. But anyway, that's a thing. Uh, but uh, what do we got here? Why is Noah supposed to take the animals? We already discussed that. It's so that they can uh, keep their offspring alive on all the face of the earth, right? That's the point. Um, and why seven pair? This is always a big question. So, all right, I, I listed a few theories, okay? These are theories that come from scholars. You might think they're great. You might think they're dumb, whatever. Why seven pairs? Well, up to the flood and during the flood, Man and animals, they all ate basically the same food. It was all plant-based, if you want to say it that way. No meat, okay? Um, but after the flood, there will be no meat restrictions. Mankind can eat any kind of meat they want. So, one theory is that maybe God knew that, hey, all of the meat that people are going to prefer, well, that's going to be the clean ones. So, <laughs> we need to make sure we have some extras. Well... That's a thought. Maybe so. I mean, it, it's actually not bad thinking. It just doesn't seem, you know, real secure. There might be a leak in that boat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it's not that great. Another one was that uh, we talked about this. Many cultures already had an idea of certain animals being fit for sacrifice and others not. We don't know about Noah's culture, but uh, so maybe there was some idea like that in Noah's day. And maybe God just sort of went with that. And this, this isn't bad because we even see at Mount Sinai, a lot of the laws that are laid down in, at Sinai, they take into account the current culture. Slavery is a great example. God could have at Sinai said, you know what? No slavery. Everybody else is doing it, but you won't do it. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he, he refined it in a way to show that, hey, uh, people who are down on their luck, people who find themselves in a position of needing to actually be owned by someone else just to carry on their life, they can't do it on their own, all that kind of stuff, 
they too are worthy of respect and dignity and care, and you can't treat them this way, right? Almost, it doesn't quite, but almost as if even slavery was an act of mercy. I, you can't make it on your own. I'm not going to just, you know, keep giving you stuff, but tell you what, you come in, you're now mine, and I will care for you the rest of your life. But you'll work for me, right? So he, he rethought slavery in its entirety. So he used what was existing and popular in culture, redefined it so that ultimately it would lead humans to the place of, you know, after we think about it, wouldn't it just be better if we didn't do that at all? Which is sort of where we've ended up, humanity in general, we've moved there. And I mean, no matter how you slice it, God is the one that started that revolution at Sinai. The way he redefined it did that work. So there's that. So that's what they're talking about here. Maybe God just taught Noah. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't fit. Wrong place. And then maybe the answer was simply, um, you know, the unclean animals. Uh, well, I don't know. I can't even remember if rabbits are clean or unclean. I don't keep track of the list, but we use the phrase multiply like rabbits, right? And so maybe, you know, the, the unclean animals were the ones that were prolific, <laughs> let's say, and that the clean animals, maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe their, their ability to reproduce was much slower and, you know, all that kind of thing. So it could be something like that. Don't know. Um, Oh, this was an interesting thing. When it talks about the birds in this verse, and it says male and female, it uses very generic Hebrew words. That, I mean, the way we would think in English, they just mean male and female. But when it was talking about all the, the, and the beasts, the animals, it doesn't use those words. We still translate it male and female, but what it says is ish and isha. Do you remember those words from Genesis 2? Ish was man. Woman was Isha. So when God says, you shall, you know, uh, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, a male and his mate. Uh, where's the male and female part? Oh, there you go. At the end of verse 2, it says, uh, well, does it say male and female? It must be referring to earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mine does too. Yeah, I'm trying to now see. If I'd had my written notes, I would have underlined it and drew a line. So now this is messed up. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to have to do something. Colors. This applies to that, right? Yeah. Well, the only other note I had on here was that when it talks about all of the earth, uh, just for what it's worth, the word means land. It's Eretz. It's on all of the land, right? Um on the face of all the land, which it only makes sense in the story because we're trying to save the land animals, not everybody. So we get that. But, all right, that's a lot of stuff in there, right? We talked about a lot of things. Any comments or questions? I've always wondered a kind of a silly thought like, you know, it takes kangaroos a long time to hop from Australia all the way up to wherever the boat is. That's right. Some of those animals had to start their journey yeah. maybe quite a bit before. Yeah. How did God get all the animals to where Noah was? And kangaroos in Australia is a great example. Yeah. There was no roundups. Didn't have roundups. Didn't have roundups. Said, you know, in, in one of the verses there, it says, they will come to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That, and see, these are... Just 
Okay. Just God spoke to Noah. He spoke the kangaroo, goat, and all. That's I right. I don't know, but you yeah. know, there was something wired. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. And I think again, to be fair, did the earth and the land did did any of that look anything before the flood like it looked after the flood? Right? I mean, we don't know. We don't know. That scientists think that the land used to be all one thing and then it all broke apart. Is any of that time related? You know, I, we don't know. Did was uh, what we see of the animals today, knowing that, yeah, well, these all stay here and these all stay here. Was that the same in Noah's day? I mean, we, we don't know any of that stuff. But these are the kind of questions, the kind of imaginings that actually bring the scripture to life. You don't have to have the answers. Sometimes the questions make everything much more interesting, right? You, you, it, it, part of the time, because we don't know the mystery, it's kind of what makes it fun, right? It's good. So, yeah. Anybody else? Any comments or questions? We might try and do one more little bit here. And this is a good one. Anyone? All right. Whose turn is it? David? Mm-hmm. All right. Read verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Okay. All right. Seven days. For in seven days I will send rain. So, the thing is, in verse 1, God said, go into the ark. In verse 4, he says, for... In seven days, I will send rain on the earth. So first question, was Noah supposed to, like Mike, you talked about it, was he supposed to take his family and all of the animals into the ark and then they all just sit there for seven days? Is that what he was supposed to do? Or, here's another possibility, did it actually take seven days for them to, all right, let's start carrying all the food in. Let's start getting these animals in and into their stalls. And, you know, wait, no, that can't go on this level. Those guys will eat each other. I mean, you know, I'm making that up. But you know what I'm saying? Did they, did it take seven days to do, go into the ark? Right? We, we don't know. Uh, But interestingly, Where else have we read about seven days? The seven days of creation in Genesis 1. It takes seven days for Noah, we could say, if if this theory is correct, we could say it takes seven days for Noah to save creation, if you will. Right? So that's an interesting picture. Uh, Was there another one? Or, well, yeah, I guess, <laughs> I guess the last possibility is that God commands it, and then he tells him, hey, in seven days I'm going to flood. And so Noah just understands, hey, before the rain starts, you need to have your butt on board the ark, right? Now, that one is another possibility that's not too, ba- not too bad because, think again about the creation story. What does God do the first six days? And what does he do on the seventh day? rest. So Noah is going to be doing all this work, whatever, but on the seventh day, they actually enter the ark. In the seventh day, they enter Sabbath. In the seventh day, they enter rest. They are saved from destruction. Hmm? Do you see all the, the connections, the ties? The whole idea of the seventh day of Sabbath, of rest, That is all across the story of your Bible. The kingdom represents the seventh day, a day that is uh, altogether Sabbath, right? All the provision is there. All the rest is there. It's all good. And then there's this mysterious concept of the eighth day. Oh, wait a second. There's only seven days. What are you talking about? Well, the eighth day is the world to come. It's the restart, the new, right? Game over. No, that's wrong. 
do-over, <laughs> right? Yeah, you get the idea. So there's that. Um, so it could have been any of those or something we've never thought about, but for whatever reason, we know God tells him one day go into the ark, and then seven days later, it's going to start raining. Now, here's another question. Have you ever heard, well, it had never rained on the earth before. Ever heard that? Yeah, me too. And in fact, it's even in your scripture. Do you remember where it says that? This was in Eden. He was describing Eden, and he said there was a spring or springs that came up out of the ground and watered everything, for it had not yet rained on the earth. So the question is, are we supposed to take that statement in the Garden of Eden and apply that to all of the earth for all of the time between Adam and Eve and Noah? Did it not rain all of that time? The text isn't really explicit about it. We don't know. We don't know the answer to that. It could have rained before, just not to flood the earth, right? Or it could never have rained before. And Noah building an ark look crazy, talking about this rain stuff was even crazier, right? But we don't know. We, we, we don't really know. Uh, if God had not yet caused it to rain in Genesis 2.5, that was in Eden, did that continue until now? Don't know. Um, now, here's another one. Uh, Hebrews 11.7. Can somebody find that really quickly and read that? Hebrews 11.7. It's a race. Go ahead, Terry. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things <clears throat> not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Yeah. Now read that first part again where it talks about things not yet seen. By faith, <clears throat> Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Okay. Moved with godly fear. Yeah. Being divinely warned of things not yet seen. The question is, what things are those? Was he warned of, hey, you've never seen this rain stuff before, but check it out. It's going to be kind of cool. Or was it, uh, you've never seen rain like this. It's going to flood the earth right? Again, either interpretation is possible. We can't know the answer. Some people like to look at that and go, oh, Genesis 2.5, Hebrews 11.7, it had never rained before. Well, maybe, but it's not a given. You look at those two places and you can go, yeah, but that's not like unassailable. It, it still could have rained, and those two verses make perfect sense, right? So I'm just saying, we don't know if he'd never seen rain before or not. And now here's, uh, this, is, this is the fun one. So it's going to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you think of anywhere else in the scriptures where the word 40 is used, like it's, it represents something important? What are some things you can think of? 40 years in the desert. What else? Temptation, 40 years, uh, 40 days in the desert or wilderness. Yeah? Anything else? I got one nobody's going to know. Oh, lay it on us. Isaac and Esau were 40 years old when they got married. 40 years old when they got married. I just happened to be reading that. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Is 40... In your scripture, is that a, I don't know how else to say this, a good number or a bad number? <laughs> Notice how he whispered so it didn't make the recording. Yeah. <laughs> no, here's the thing. 
I want to, I want to point out there's something in the scripture that has proven to be very, very interesting for biblical study. And that is the principle of first mention. This is the first time we've seen 40 used anywhere. And it's 40 days and 40 nights of rain. What does this 40 represent? Type of destruction. Yes, destruction or judgment, right? Now, let's think about this. 40 years of wandering in the, in the desert. Is that good news or bad news? Does that represent a kind of judgment or something? Of that? Yeah, it does. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Right? It's, it's, maybe it's not a judgment, but it's, it's definitely maybe like a trial or a test or, you know, something of that. So you can see the consistency, 40 of anything in the scripture. First mention is judgment. Every time you see it thereafter, it represents something judgment, trial, test, challenge, whatever, and possibly even Isaac and Esau, or who'd you say it was? <laughs> Isaac and Esau were married at 40. Isaac and Esau married at 40. Good thing or bad thing? I don't know. All the rest of them is judgment. Everything, yeah. in, everything in here is judgment. <laughs> yeah. well, other than uh, Moses was on, uh, on the mountain 40 days. Moses was on the mountain 40 days. Yeah. Yeah. Judgment, 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 judgment. yeah. Well, and then, yeah, the... Well, you know, Moses brought yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we can, we can sort of make that connection, that relationship. So that's an important thing to see. Um, let's, uh, I think that's it on there. 40 becomes a recurring theme throughout the Bible. And then one more time, we see that every living thing is blotted out. And we had pointed out before that word in Hebrew, blotted out is like a washing away. Right, rinsing, right? And so, obviously, with a flood, that makes perfect sense. But that, uh, I think we better stop there. Oh, look, look at the next verse. <laughs> you think that I get on my soapbox for no reason. Noah did all that the Lord commanded. So, there you go. I know we're, we're making slow steps through, but... Are we, are we, you know, is this God in 8K? Are we making the, the picture uh, clearer, more colorful, more all of that? All right, we're getting in. Comments or questions? Well, there you go. You guys, generally speaking, you're a little bit on the quiet side, but this morning... You did a, a most impressive job. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Thanks for letting me buddy in. Okay. <laughs>